This is Jasper Reed, and this is Letter from India. Sometimes I hear people say that India is going through an industrial revolution at the moment. And as an Englishman, I thought in this edition I could try and compare it to um, the British Industrial Revolution, which broadly took place between around 1780 through to about 1850, when it started to relatively peter out. So it's a big, complicated topic, but I thought I'd give it a go um, and compare time and place and cultures and some of the different dynamics. So I, su- I suppose the starting point is, is you know, where was, where was the UK at? Where was Britain at? And where is India at now? If you take the UK in 1780, it was a predominantly um, agricultural society um, dominated by basically a single industry, which was wool. And at that point, uh, wool and the production of wool was um, a huge percentage of GDP. And, you know, contrary to the image of, of England down the centuries, up until the Industrial Revolution, it was really very reliant upon both agriculture uh, and, and lastly in the 18th century, wool. If you take the starting point of India, which is very different, um, and I'll juxtapose, you know, India historically with, with modern India in, in 2020. India, of course, had a much broader base of, of wealth, um, not least because, uh, it's a considerably uh, bigger entity. Um, famously, of course, India had, um, wealth in the form of minerals, uh, historically and for thousands of years, it was the dominant textile, um, um, uh, nation on earth. Um, it's jewellery, it's gold, um, its resources were um, in many senses unparalleled. And of, of, the, of the past 2,000 years, even up to now, uh, India, or what was recognised as India um, in terms of, of, of the landmass, had the highest GDP for, for 1,700 of, of 2,000 years. And of course, India, uh, and I'm not denying that England... Um, uh, was the center of many, uh, non-industrial things, philosophies, religions, ideas. Uh, India very much holds its own in the sense that it's the home of, uh, of, of mathematics via the Persians. Um, it's the home of things like the invention of chess, of snakes and ladders, ink, yoga, all sorts of stuff like that. So, um, there are different starting points here, but let's try and compare um, what's going on in India now versus the, you know, the English Industrial Revolution through, you know, certain criteria and categories. And let's, ha- having talked a bit about where, you know, what the starting points were, and it's almost impossible to compare, of course, because we're talking about you know, getting on for 300 years of difference between, you know, the two revolutions. Uh, the st- you know, the, the, the first, the first category I'm going to talk about is really resources. So, um, of course, a number of things happened in England to create the conditions for the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, it's an ecosystem and all these things are related. From a resources perspective in England, of course, famously, it was the, the widespread access to coal um, that gave uh, England an enormous advantage. Um, you know, after a while, deep cast coal mining became you know, an established technology. But in the early phases of the late 18th century, it was the English ability to get coal relatively easily that separated it from, you know, its European neighbours, France and Belgium and, you know, the Netherlands and Germany. And of course, you know, the resource then was was what was was power. 
uh, and power and coal created steam. And of course, uh, you know, through that became the ability to industrialize and, and to mechanize, whether it was mechanization of the mills or, um, you know, steam engines or, you know, spinnies or, you know, many different technologies, of course, came, came through the availability of power. If you draw a, a, a parallel with India, of course, um, and India famously has limited reserves of, of, of natural power resources, including critically these days oil. Though, of course, you know, that's changing with the death of big oil or the slow death of big oil. Um, but what, of course, India has, and this is very relevant to, um, you know, the, the new economy, the digital economy is its key resource, of course, is people. Um, and so you can draw a parallel between coal power and, and people power. And of course, famously, India, um, and it's really only comparable in, in terms of numbers with China. Um, you know, we have somewhere in the region of 780 million people in the working population, which is a little bit shy of the 770 million in, in China. Um, and of course, yeah, the distribution of, of that group is very important in terms of upside for India in the sense that you know, a little over 40% of that group work in agriculture uh, in India versus around 32% in industry and, and 25% or so in, um, in, uh, in, in services. But it's, but it's services that drives 85% of the, of the Indian GDP. And that's to do with digital. It's to do with software. It's to do with, um, media and all those production things. So from a resource perspective, um, the natural availability of cap, of, of coal in, in, in England in the industrial revolution to, to an extent can be compared with, you know, the natural availability of, of, uh, of labor in, in India. And of course, the upside is, is the shift from, from agriculture and the upside into, into things like services and to a certain extent manufacturing. So that's something about, about resources. And of course, um, resources is, is really, um, not relevant unless there are markets for the resources and the things that the resources produce. Now, if you draw a comparison again back to England in, in the 18th century and the 19th century, of course, the key, the key factor here for England was the, um, the development and the expansion of the British Empire. Um, and of course, <clears throat> the intention of that through quasi-martial, quasi-corporate entities like the East India Company or the Hudson Bay Company, many other trading companies around the world who operated under license, was the expansion of, of territories and therefore the creation of markets. And of course, if you look at, if you look at Britain at the beginning of the 18th century, there were five million people in Britain. And of course, you know, that, that doubled and doubled again by, by the end of the 18th century. But even then, of course, it was a limited market. So the market, um, was created through empire. Now, of course, if you draw a parallel with, with India, India, of course, benefits enormously from having uh, a domestic market, which, which is huge, of course. And the Indian consumption story at the moment is a, is a, is an enormous driver of, of, um, market economics and demand. And of course, it's interesting these days that, and who knows, you can't really predict it, but if we're seeing the, the increase of nationalism and, Perhaps a reduction in, in the age of, of globalization, possibly turbo boosted by 
by COVID, then India's um, uh, India's ownership of a vast domestic market becomes becomes increasingly important to the extent that it's it's self sufficient. India doesn't, in any case, have at least in in the last few hundred years a, a martial heritage of going out and grabbing other territories. Um, and it's different in the 20th century and the 21st century to China, who um, is demonstrating certain aspects of, 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 of martial expansion or a corporate version of that through, through Belt and Roads and the rest of it. Um, so, so point one resources, uh, point two, two markets. Um, point three, which is sort of connected to markets and resources is, is what are the products that are being created? What, what do these things do? In terms of the zeitgeist to create products and services, and of course, again, and mentioned before, famously in England, um, the Industrial Revolution was an age of an age of invention. It was an age of spirit, and you can debate whether, you know, the the the, the, the Victorians or the Georgians before them were um, innately more inventive. It's probably a lot to do with the conditions, frankly, in the country. Uh, but the conditions were were there, and many uh, inventions, of course, which were then developed through Germany and and you know, the U.S. I mean, you see people like Jefferson and Edison coming to the U.K. and then they develop those in the much larger market of of you know the emerging United States. In India, again, of course, you can draw a parallel because um, India, particularly on the technology side, is becoming increasingly inventive, um, and it's an interesting case of. Um, you know, Indians resident in India and non-resident Indians, the diaspora. So, you know, if you look at, um, you know, perhaps cultural or, or tribal inventiveness, um, it's clearly the case. And it's an intriguing thing because if you look at the leaders in Silicon Valley, you know, whether it's the CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella or Sundar Pichai, who heads up, heads up Google, you know, these are all NRIs, non-resident Indians, ethnic Indians, and actually technology in India is dominated. You know, it's not dominated, but the but the but the the non-resident Indian diaspora is hugely well represented. I was visiting Facebook in Palo Alto, you know, a couple of years ago, and uh, everywhere you looked, were I felt like I was back in Delhi, frankly. Um, now, famously, uh, and, and maybe there's a bit of cultural shtick in this. Indians are often seen as being more inventive when they're not in, in India. And that's partly possibly because there are lots of barriers in India at the moment to success, which is changing. But of course, famously in India as well, there's a huge amount of invention, whether it's, you know, Tata Consulting Services or Infosys or, you know, the new generation of, of, um, uh, of tech-led businesses, whether that's, you know, um, Flipkart or Swiggy or Zomato or rebel foods you know the list the list goes on and on by the way the usb port um, i read this of course was was invented in india so um you know a combination of the technology age huge numbers in india plus you know this kind of at the moment largely unexploited technology market we're, we're at the ground floor of this effectively or possibly at the mezzanine level um you know has created the incentive for an invention of course and I say this as an entrepreneur myself in India, uh, um, you know, I've never seen a more inventive entrepreneurial country. And it's a long debate, you know, wh why that is. It's a lot to do with hunger and necessity, frankly, um, and the Indian culture of jugad or, or problem solving. 
Um, but I would, you know, in, in a kind of global competition between the, uh, the inventors of the British Industrial Revolution and, and the current, you know, digital-led uh, Indian Revolution, if that's what we call it, I think the Indian, the Indian, uh, uh, the Indian business people would would very much kind of hold their own. So that was really point three around, you know, inventions and innovation and and and, and products and all of that. Point four is an interesting one. It's really around the kind of regulatory conditions. Um, and of course, if you go back to the Industrial Revolution in England, a lot of it was powered by taxes and tariffs, effectively. So, you know, up until the 1780s, pretty much 90% of the tax sweep um, to the exchequer in, in Britain came from the landowners, who, of course, got increasingly fed up that they were financing the country and there were expensive wars going on, not least the Napoleonic Wars, the Peninsular Wars. Um, and, uh, you, you know, over time, there was a necessity to basically spread the tax burden. Um, and it is slightly chicken and egg here, but um, what, what you saw through the Industrial Revolution, and this was a lot to do with the expertise of the regulators, was a combination of, of um, getting cleverer and cleverer as a, you know, um, inland revenue in pulling tax out from different bits of, of industry and society. And of course, the other side of the coin was that, um, and this was, you know, this was extant across the British Empire, was the tactical and strategic use of tariffs. So, you know, um, famously, and, and this is where, you know, India, India and England come together. There were a lot of, um, uh, blocking maneuvers, you know, through, Either the big trading houses, the East India Company, or, or bilaterally, which you know whacked big tariffs on um, you know goods, particularly textiles, calico, things like that, coming out of India. So um, yeah, the British became masters of that game, and that was an essential part of really driving the growth. And you know, it underpinned the revolution. Of course, famously later on, having become you know buccaneering free trade people, which I think is what. Yeah, certainly the, the, the ruling regime in the UK would like to think um, Britain is about to become again, let's see. Uh, but ha- but having, having basically been masters in the arts of tariffs, then they sort of let their guard down. And ultimately, you can look at the, you know, the, the you know, the, the basically the revolution and the, and the upsurge in American steel manufacturing and the low tariffs in England as, as being what basically destroyed those industries, you know, later on there was shipping in England, etc. And so, you know, free trade led to looser tariffs, led to loss of trade, um, etc. Um, now, of course, connected to that a little bit was, um, you know, the exercise of, of, well, no, before I go on to the exercise part, let me go, let me go back to the Indian regulatory side of life. Um, cause it's an important topic. So, one of the challenges of the last, you know, since partition, which was 1947, is that India has, you know, famously failed to sweep up um, as much tax as it should. Um, I can't remember what the statistic is, but until relatively easily, recently, it's something like 70% of taxes are not, potential taxes are not really collected. And you're, of course, you're not going very far if you don't do that. Now, the introduction... Where are we now? Three and a bit years ago of the goods and services tax, GST, which has been incredibly bumpy because it's a unifying tax. Um, it's sort of taking us in the right, the right direction there, but it's a bit of an open question in the sense that whereas, whereas Britain became 
masters in the art of tax collection and tariffs. Uh, India has a bit to go on that front. So I think that's kind of a watch, watch this space. Certainly from a kind of FDI foreign direct investment perspective, India has become increasingly liberalized. And, you know, there are very few sectors now where the world can't trade. So, you know, I think there is by and large an acceptance that um, trying to keep out uh, foreign parties from markets is counterproductive. Indeed, I think, you know, India looks looks jealously on at what mainland China achieved by letting people in. And then, you know, let's say in inverted commas, learning, learning from, you know, foreign know-how, uh, transferring IP, all that kind of stuff, and then and then building up your own, you know, your own, you know, indigenous domestic powerhouse businesses. So, um, uh, you know, while there are kind of comparable pieces in the story so far, perhaps the regulatory pieces is, is uh, sort of beta minus for India at the moment. So, you know, room for improvement. Um, I was going to say, I was going on to say before that the the, the the other part you can't get away from here and comparing, you know, the two revolutions, if India is a revolution, question mark, uh, is the is the power side of it, the martial side of it. And here, um, and perhaps covered slightly before, but um, it is absolutely the case that England used its its armed forces and its you know its machinery of, of imperial conquest and 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 so called development or occupation, perhaps is a better word. Um, to further its trade endeavours. Um, India has never really been expansionist like that, um, not historically, and shows no sign of being so, and has really been, by and large, non-aligned um, since independence. And it's, and you know, frankly, let's call that neutral in the sense that it's not really in vogue to go and um, steal other people's countries when, when they're not looking and exploit them. And of course, just as a reference point, the uh, the British Empire uh, and the the you know, the military forces of the British Empire would not have existed were it not for Indian manpower. Um, uh, so let's draw a veil over that item. So what is this? What is this all adding up to? I think you know there are there are parallels in this story. I'm neither an economist nor nor am I an, an, an economic historian, but the question is often asked. So I thought I'd try and try and break it down a little bit. I guess then you get into a few considerations around you know what does what does uh, what does any of this mean anyway um you know i think categorically china um is in the middle of of a of a huge revolution both an industrial revolution and a, a digital technology revolution but of course and the victorians knew this in england it begs the question what does any of this mean of course it means increase in gdp it means increase in you know, wealth on an individual level, but, you know, it means other things too. And I wanted to reflect on that slightly. So I think the first thing one would, would look at is, is, you know, in, of course, famously in, in Britain, there was a huge shift from, you know, the country to the cities. And, you know, I, it's hard to come to a conclusion on whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. Economically, of course, it was, um, enormously wealth enhancing for the country and and for many individuals but of course it begged all sorts of questions around you know the dignity of man whether the country was better than the city and you see this playing out in india now and i won't attempt to reach a conclusion i'll just i'll just draw some parallels but of course there's an ongoing debate in india and you saw this recently during the effectively reverse migration of of casual laborers who were locked down in the cities, you know, all trying to get back home. So, you know, it suddenly became a live issue of, 
where are people better off? Certainly, our personal conclusion was during lockdown, people going home was, well, first of all, it was a matter of independent choice, but secondly, it was better than having your family in the city, etc. Having said all of that, um, you know, the Indian countryside, uh, where the vast majority of the country, uh, of course, live, um, is very traditional. It's very patriarchal. Um, it has all of the elements, really, of of what 18th century rural life in England were. So you might have had fresh air, and of course, the Indian cities are famously polluted at the moment, which which is a which is a big barrier. Really, uh, hopefully, that will change as as bigger oil diminishes. But um, you know, being in being in a village in um, 18th century in England was no picnic in the sense it was incredibly patrician. The landowner knew where you were, even if you went to the alehouse, and um, life was very, very constrained. Uh, religion was often incredibly dogmatic and disciplinarian. So many people found their liberation in the city, which of course, you know, was innately more varied, um, had more ideas, more things to do, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so the same dynamic, of course, gets played out in India all the time. One thing that is interesting in India, and this is an, is, a, is an observation I wanted to make, is that net migration into the cities in India, according to people like Shell, um, you know, the oil giant who study this, is in many cases going into reverse. And the reason for that apparently is that um, the digital enablement of of the smaller towns in India means that those towns can, can become larger towns and economically viable without people actually having to move out to the bigger cities. And it's an interesting fact in India that actually, if you look at the, um, the World Bank's definition of urban, which is a matter of concentration per, per square kilometre, the vast majority of India is actually urbanised, which of course explodes a rural myth that, uh, sorry, an urban, an urban myth, a rural myth, a popular myth that India is, is 70% rural. So if you look at the World Bank definition, it's actually, it's actually 30%. The point here is, is there are many, many hundreds and hundreds of quite big towns that are able to become economically viable because of, of technology and micro lending and, and e-commerce and all sorts of things. So, that's an interesting thing to watch in terms of whether India can have a revolution and actually that revolution can be much more equally spread between city and, and country. Um, so that's, that's kind of one observation on all of this. I think the second observation really is, and this is just a historical observation, which is that there's something about revolutions that means that they burn very brightly and then they they fizzle out, basically. So, um, you know, the Industrial Revolution in England, which started slowly in the late 18th century and burnt very, very brightly in the early 18th century, by 1850, which I think 1851 was the, the date of the Grand Exhibition, the Great Exhibition in, in Crystal Palace, you know, kind of great celebration of invention and empire and all those things. After that, and sort of between whatever it was, 1851 and 1860-something, when the, you know, the equivalent Paris, the, you know, the famous Paris exhibition came about, there was a, there was a sneaking sense in, in Britain that actually the, the revolution had come off the boil, and that was a lot to do with competition. It was a lot to do with you know, European countries like Germany getting their act together, starting to create formidable chemical industries, which have endured to this day, 
It was about the rise of the United States, which of course had a huge advantage in, in terms of population and was kind of innately entrepreneurial um, and built by pioneers without many of the strictures that, that Britain had. Um, and so perhaps that's a lesson. It's a, it's a bit of a lesson for China. It's a lesson for India is that you may or may not be in a revolution, but no sooner do revolutions start, but they have a, they have a, have a habit of ending and, and thus the wheel, the wheel turns. Um, and the last thing I guess I wanted to say was going back to, going back to India. So, you know, manifestly, and this is the benefit of hindsight, the, the British Industrial Revolution did happen. It was real. And it's tied to the things that, you know, we've, we've been talking about here. Um, but one of the things that is on, is on people's mind, it's certainly on my mind in India is that, um, while the conditions in India are very, very promising, on a political front, one of the things that seems to be uh, in doubt is is the extent to which the politics is configured correctly. And of course, Narendra Modi has has accumulated and consolidated tremendous power to the extent that that, that in essence, and you'll see many commentators on this, India is almost a one party state at the moment. Of course, it isn't. It's a democracy, and and everyone will have their day. And a bit like you know, a bit like, a bit like revolutions, you don't want to get too comfortable because, because they end. Having said that, um, you know, the question is, is in, in a single party state, even if for a period of time, and I think it's not unreasonable to believe that, um, Modi could, could, um, could rule for as long as Nehru, which I think it was about 16 years, something like that. And the question is, is, um, is that consolidation of power good for the revolution? Or not good for the revolution. And I won't put a judgment on it. I'll just perhaps put a question mark over it. There are some encouraging signs. And this COVID thing has really brought the economy to its knees. And you know, in the last few weeks, uh, the BJP has pushed through some, some really quite sizable reforms around land and labor, probably slightly under the cover of COVID, but also in recognition that something has to change in the economy. So that's encouraging. Of course, the other side of the coin is this is, um, you know, the latent concern around the Hindutva and whether the agenda is, is a broader one, whether economics is really a focus or whether the establishment of the, the Hindu nation, which is sort of contrary to what, what Nehru thought about is really the top item or whether it's just a pragmatic case of consolidating power and everybody knows that the economy has to work, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, those are my reflections on this subject. This is a slightly longer uh, letter from India, but it's quite a kind of complicated topic. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, these are the the thoughts of someone, I guess, who's not qualified economically or, uh, or or as a historian, but at least is is in India building. You know, we're building our family business here, and we've we've been doing it for seven years, so we're we're kind of in the middle of all this change. So um, maybe that anchors the perspective of of this um of this podcast anyway you tell me thanks for listening